Workers' Comp Matters, the podcast dedicated to the laws, the landmark cases, and the people that make up the diverse world of workers' compensation. Here are your hosts, Judd and Alan Pierce. Welcome to another edition of Workers' Comp Matters. My name is Judd Pierce, and I am delighted to be hosting this alongside our founder and lead spokesman of the program, Alan Pierce. Hello, Alan. Hey, Judson, how are you? I'm happy to do this show again with you. It's always a pleasure. Well, today we have a very special issue, uh, episode, I should say. We have done this subject uh, in the past, and by uh, high demand, we are put together another list of very strange workers' comp cases from around the country, right? Yeah, and the demand was, I think, three people asked uh, for us to do it again. (laughs) (laughs) So we know somebody's listening. Yeah, and we were chatting before we started the the podcast. One of the interesting aspects of our practice is, and I don't want to make light of the fact that people get hurt, but it's amazing the different ways that uh, people find themselves injured, not only outside of the workplace, but more particularly inside the workplace, because that's where we see these interesting cases. So although we are discussing them and some of them might involve a little banter or lightheartedness, we don't want to downplay the fact that uh, some folks are injured, if not seriously injured, and the legal issues sometimes override or outweigh uh, the, the toll it takes, even when people do something stupid. I also want to indicate that, you know, when we talk about these cases, results may vary from jurisdiction to jurisdiction. We'll try to outline some of the legal principles involved. And we also want to give credit to the fact that there are a lot of people who collect these cases. We, we look on online for them. Some of them we've heard about. Some of them we've handled ourselves. And in particular, I know that uh, Tom Robinson at LexisNexis every year does a collection of the top 10 unusual or bizarre workers' compensation cases. So to the extent that uh, we are noting uh, some of the cases that uh, the internet brings to us, I want to uh, indicate that there are people that that do the work and collect these things. So I thank them for that. Judd, uh, having said that, why don't you start us off with uh, the first case that you think might be of interest to our audience and certainly to us? Yeah, I, I'd love to get your take, Alan, on it too, whether you think it... Uh, the decision and the finding by the court was something that would be upheld in other jurisdictions. But this case concerns a teacher in a classroom. And as many of us can remember from our days in school, sometimes there's an experience of a dull sensation that sort of splashes over you when you're in a class for a very long time. Well, this specific classroom in Florida had to do with students who were in trouble or being disciplined Uh, expelled, actually, from their involvement in other incidents at other schools, the students were required then to stay in one classroom all day, but they were allowed to leave that room for lunch and for special elective classes. So on the day of this gentleman's injury, before dismissing the class for lunch, this teacher took a seat in his usual chair at his usual desk, where he sat for about five minutes or less. In his testimony, he described the chair as being similar to the rolling chair he was actually seated on uh, for the workers' comp hearing. And as the teacher stood up, he felt no feeling in his left leg. And so his left leg gave way, and it caused the teacher to fall on the linoleum floor and break his left femur. There was nothing that he struck on the way down, nor did he trip or stumble before he fell, no one assaulted or pushed him. The doctors 
in the case said that this condition is relatively common. We've all had, uh, you know, our feet go to sleep, uh, you know, when we've been in the movie theater or whatever. The teacher's leg could have, in other words, fallen asleep virtually anywhere. And so the workers' comp body, uh, the administrative agency, found that the sitting and standing described by the teacher were routine movements. You know, he was sitting down at a chair about five minutes. He wasn't uh, sitting there for any real length of time. You know, something, again, normally he would be exposed to in his non-employment life. And so the teacher's leg going numb didn't flow from his employment, in other words. And so the agency denied the claim. That was appealed, and the appeals court affirmed that decision. They actually quoted Larson's workers' comp law uh, treatise and applied the major contributing cause standard there in Florida, saying that since, again, that it could have been caused in a normal fashion every day outside of work, the teacher failed to show that the risk of being in school and being in that classroom would have led to, you know, it's like going to sleep and then falling. So that's Silverberg v. Palm Beach County, and that was decided in February of 2022. Well, I, you know what, even though I am a claimant attorney, as you are, Judd, and I like to see cases, even close cases, uh, be decided with the benefit to the injured worker, I can't disagree with the finding in this case. However, I think it could and should have been denied on other grounds other than the major cause. Uh, I see two issues here that may have been addressed somewhat, but not relied upon by the court. The first is what's known, and Larson in his treatise talks about it quite a bit, is the law of idiopathic falls. If somebody in the workplace were to simply fall, idiopathic means of an unknown cause, but even if it's a known cause, but an un non-work-related cause, such as uh, you faint, you have uh, you have an underlying epileptic condition, you didn't take your meds, you have uh, low blood sugar, you have high blood pressure or low blood pressure, and you fall, and you injure yourself in the fall. The law of idiopathic falls essentially says you are not covered for workers' comp because that fall could have occurred anywhere at any time. It was just a coincidence of time and place that it occurred in the workplace. In this case, it's, it's similar. The fact that he had the pins and needles sensation, the paresthesia of his leg, which made it go numb and couldn't withhold his weight, and he went down, uh, the court paid attention to the fact that he didn't strike anything on the way down. He didn't hit a workbench. He didn't hit his desk and break his leg. He broke it on the floor. And usually the law of idiopathic falls has what's called the level floor doctrine. If you go from the standing position to the level floor, and there's always a level floor below you, whether it's the ground a hardwood floor, a carpet, or the grass, the injuries caused by that floor are not covered. So I think under the law of idiopathic falls, this case could have been denied. And the second principle, I think, are the normal activities of everyday life. If you have a job in which you are on your feet walking all day, walking is a normal part of daily life. And if it's just the attritional wear and tear of just walking, at least in Massachusetts, we have a case called Zorowski's case that distinguishes ordinary wear and care from repetitive stress, individual mini traumas. So this could also have been sort of a normal activity of daily living, just getting, you know, a, a uh, yeah. pins and needles and then going down. So as much as I think the injury arose during the employment, it did not really arise out of the employment. Well, I think you hit the nail on the head. The, the court in its decision 
describes uh, the idiopathic element and says that they wanted to get into the increased hazard test because of the fact that the accident occurred on a, could be deemed a comfort break. So we've talked about comfort breaks on this show and that they can be deemed compensable. Would that sort of shed more light on it for in favor of the uh, claimant? You know, it could have, again, these cases are all truly fact dependent. And we know on personal comfort, if somebody's injured in the bathroom or in the cafeteria uh, or they're on a break of personal comfort, it is generally considered compensable. <laughs> I, I don't want to make light of the situation, but had this fellow used the toilet and his leg had fallen asleep on the toilet, uh, this might have come out differently under the personal comfort doctrine. Sort of the same hmm. as if he slipped on a wet floor in the bathroom. So, you know, sitting on a chair, the leg falling asleep, getting up from the chair after five minutes, I don't know, close call, a more liberal court might have uh, found a way to find for the claimant, a more conservative yeah. court uh, may not. And that's what makes the practice of this law wonderful, challenging, and always educational because you can twist the facts just a little bit and you can get a little different result and you can go to a neighboring state and get a different result. Why don't you uh, take a stab at uh, a case that you looked at, Alan? All right. Actually, I've got two that I want to talk together. Uh, let's call them the explosion cases or the firecracker case. The, the first one comes out of the state of Washington, and it involves a couple of concepts. Uh, one is it was an Amtrak worker. Now, Amtrak employees are not covered under traditional state-based workers' compensation. They're covered under uh, basically federal employees' liability or the ra for railroad uh, workers. And in addition to workers' comp, they also have the ability to sue their employer if the employer is negligent or doesn't provide a safe workplace, which is unusual because in most cases, the employer cannot be sued. Workers' comp is traditionally a no-fault system. So in this case, the injured worker was a baggage handler. And again, <laughs> he went to the West room, restroom and as he was sitting down, he heard an explosion. And when he uh, looked, somebody had thrown a firecracker into the, into oh the bathroom gosh. and he fell <laughs> oh and God. he ended up injuring himself. He had a uh, tetanus shot. He had to take pain medication and he sued his employer Amtrak under FELA, the Federal Employers Liability Act, for not providing a safe workplace. Now, I am going to suggest that he probably did receive and was eligible for workers' compensation because he was clearly was injured in the course of employment, somebody threw a firecracker. But in terms of Amtrak being responsible for his pain and suffering, the court said, not so fast. The scope of duty was limited, and this is a general precept in civil liability law, to the foreseeability of the harm, and that Amtrak could not reasonably have foreseen that somebody would throw an explosive device or a firecracker into a bathroom. Hence, they should not be liable if he sued the person who, who he found and did it. I suspect he could have recovered in tort mm -hmm. against that person. Although, again, the fellow servant immunity rule might have extended. I'm not sure that the civil liability can extend to coworkers. I think it's only the employer, but I could be wrong. So in that case, I'm guessing that he, he could have received and should have received workers' comp, but should not have received any monies uh, from Amtrak for failing to provide a safe workplace due to foreseeability. What about if it, if, it, if it wasn't a coworker, but was rather a passenger, could he recovered? No, well, again, you know, at what point is Amtrak responsible if, if, for example, they did not have proper 
They didn't screen the passengers coming on. Yeah, you could add some facts that would draw Amtrak's behavior or lack of behavior as evidence of some type of negligence or carelessness. But just generally speaking, you cannot foresee that somebody would throw a firecracker anywhere, right. you know, where an employee could be working. Now, there's yeah. another case that, and again, these cases turn on credibility. This was a firecracker case, and it was a state case. It came out of Illinois, and a fellow whose last name was Junior was a manual laborer at a city reservoir, and his job was to remove tree branches, mow the lawn. And while doing so, he saw what he thought was uh, a round red object on the ground. So he picked it up, and it blew up on him. It blew off uh, or severely injured his hands and figures and burned his uh, hands and chest, and it was a fire firecracker. He basically testified that's what happened. He just picked up this random object. The insurance company spent some money on this case, and they hired some experts. And first of all, they found out that the claimant, the injured worker, admitted that he carried a cigarette lighter, uh, that he had never taken the cigarette lighter out, that he carried it on his belt or in his pocket. However, they did a forensic analysis of his injuries and also uh, the burn pattern uh, and the lack of any burns on his pants, belt, etc. And the fact that the only way this firecracker could have possibly ignited is if it were lit by a match or a cigarette lighter. So the hearing officer and the reviewing board exercised their discretion to make credibility determinations that the claimant, the injured worker, injured himself, that he saw a firecracker, that the the evidence suggested a strong inference that he lit it and it blew up in his hand, perhaps prematurely before he got a chance to fire, uh, throw it away. And he lost the case as well as a couple of digits on his, on his hand. And in most jurisdictions, the serious willful misconduct of an injured worker will deprive, that is a defense, it will deprive him of or her of getting workers' compensation benefits. So he might have gotten comp if for some reason it was some type of device that if you just touch it, it would go off, like um, oh, maybe some type of, maybe stepped on a, a landmine that was, you know, maybe the circumstances would be different. Mm -hmm. That would be covered. But the evidence here seemed to strongly suggest, and this also goes to show that the injured worker always has the burden of proof. It's not enough to show he got hurt at work. He has to show that he credibly has described a situation as to how he got hurt. And in this case, he just simply wasn't believed, much to his detriment. All right. Why don't we take this opportunity uh, to hear from one of our sponsors, and we'll be right back with Alan Pierce and myself on uh, the strange cases coming out of workers' compensation decisions in 2022. Mara's case is the number one law practice management solution tailor-made for workers' compensation firms. Streamline your practice with Mara's case's easy-to-use all-in-one platform. You're empowered to breeze through case and document management workers' compensation forms, e-filing, calendaring, and invoicing. Learn how Maris Case can increase your firm's efficiency today. Visit MarisCase.com. That's M-E-R-U-S-C-A-S-E.com. Be the best resource you can for your Spanish-speaking clients with the Spanish Group's Legal Translation Service. Experienced translators ensure accurate translation of your documents with same-day delivery. Confidentiality is ensured, and the Spanish group guarantees acceptance for certified translations. All that, and their rates are competitive. If you need other languages, the Spanish group translates in over 140 languages. 
Mention Legal Talk 20 when you request your quote for 20% off your first translation. Visit thespanishgroup.org. And we're back. I'd like to take a stab of, of binding two cases from two jurisdictions together, much like the firecracker cases. We have the bear hug cases. If you've ever been on a large construction site, you might notice uh, some music being played. In other cases, it's really against the rules of the workplace to, to have music uh, playing while people are doing their job. Well, in this unusual case from Mississippi, there was a greatest installer at a construction site. And there were other workers from other trades, uh, I think the sprinkler installation company working nearby. And while there was credibility determinations by the judge here, it did appear that some workers were listening to a Christian rap music on a cell phone. And some of the acoustical grid workers nearby complained that this Christian rap music was too loud. There could have been some harsh words, and then those harsh words turned into uh, a calamity and uh, injury. There was a fight. Racial epithets were thrown as well. Apparently, the, the lover of the Christian rap music got the claimant in a chokehold after he suggested that country music was a better musical genre. And the gentleman was thrown to the floor, underwent surgery to repair a tear of the medial collateral ligament, and he sought workers' comp benefits. Obviously, here we have a, a, an injury occurring at the workplace, but the administrative judge found it not to be compensable because there was a deviation from employment. There was a, an argument about music, and the two gentlemen fought over that. The, on appeal, it was determined that the judge had it right, that the person who had been hurt had engaged in conduct intended to injure himself or another. Appellate court affirming, finding the altercations cause had been about the music and not over work. So it didn't arise out of and in the course of his employment. And so this is a little bit like you were saying, Alan, uh, before the break, where, you know, there's a, there's a prohibition, uh, there's a, a preclusion of getting comp if you cause your own injury. And that's essentially what happened here. I suppose if the argument was not about music, but was about, you know, say say two two workers in the same trade were arguing about which way to get the job done the correct way, the fast way, and it was an argument over the job getting done rather than something so out there about like music, maybe that would have been deemed compensable. What do you think, Alan? I think you're right. I think there is a wide body of law in most jurisdictions, if not all jurisdictions, about altercations in the workplace. And to summarize it, as I understand it, altercations in the workplace are compensable even for the injuries suffered by the perpetrator of the, uh, the fight or the altercation. However, there must be some relationship of the subject of the altercation to the work so mm -hmm. that if uh, they're to have a fight over a woman or a man or uh, whether the Red Sox or the Cubs, you know, deserve to win the World Series, that generally would not be considered compensable. So in this case, I think it could have gone the other way only because if music is accepted part and is allowed and, you know, these, I call it the zone, I think the courts have called it the zone of uh, danger. If, if the workplace puts you in a setting where the setting itself can provide the reason for an altercation. In this case, 
it was music, which let's say the supervisor allows to be played or they, they do it. And there's a fight over the music, but for being working together, there wouldn't have been mm. the issue. So it could have gone the other way. And the other exception yeah. would be if the injured party was injured because the person who hit him picked up a tool and hit him with the tool and it was the employer's the instrument of the employment that could take it away from the personal rationale and bring it more into the workplace. Again, very mm-hmm. fact dependent, very credibility, de- credible dependency on this. And like I mm-hmm. say, uh, this case could have gone the other way, but the general principle that a altercation over a subject matter that is completely divorced from, from the workplace should not expose the employer or its insurer to the burden of, of liability for that. So not necessarily yeah. a decision I would totally disagree with. Yeah, one, one thing I, I did want to quote the court in the decision. Um, and again, this is the case of Hollis versus Acoustics, September of 2022 out of Mississippi. Uh, the court stated right before its conclusion that, quote, in order for an injury to be compensable under Workman's Compensation Acts, it is necessary that the injury result from some risk to which the employment of the claimant exposes him. Okay, so if the, the risk was to be around other people who were playing music to get through the day, then you could see it going the other way, I suppose. Yeah. Yeah. Let's say somebody insisted on playing um, a new source that uh, the person had a significant uh, disagreement with. Let's say it was a, a racial or a political something that triggered an argument. Again, in the workplace, they're playing a radio, watching TV, and as a result, an altercation takes place. I think there could be an argument that there was a sufficient connection to the workplace. So let's let's deviate a little bit from uh, altercations and maybe how about a threat of an altercation. I'm going to talk about a case that came out of New Hampshire, uh, weed versus the spraying system. It wasn't necessarily a workers' compensation claim. It was more of a retaliation, discrimination, violation of uh, rights, FMLA. It involved a worker who, due to a non-work-related hernia condition, had to leave work for a period of time under FMLA to have hernia surgery. And following the surgery, he indicated medically that he had developed a hydrocele, which is um, in his testicles leading to excruciating pain. It's a collection of fluid And as a result, he was out of work much longer than he would have been expected to for a simple hernia operation. He came back to a significant lifting uh, restriction and his supervisor called him into the office. He was not happy that he was out that long. He was not happy that he had these restrictions. And he got so upset at uh, poor Mr. Weed that he told him that he uh, didn't believe him. He thought he was uh, taking too much time off. And he said, allegedly said, uh, after Mr. Wheat started to panic, he said, I'm going to grab you by your testicle and I'm going to squeeze it. And as a result, uh, Wheat claims he was emotionally injured. And if in fact these uh, statements were made, I don't doubt the fact that uh, uh, the supervisor was clearly wrong, but he filed a, cl- uh, a civil complaint for this and it came up to uh, the, the court on a motion for summary judgment. And basically the uh, employer came in and said, you know, there's no issue here that would cause us to be responsible. We want the case dismissed. The court did find that there were triable, provable, factual issues that really must be reserved 
for the fact finder, in this case, the jury. And the case was sent back. And I don't know what happened. Uh, summary judgment was denied. The case either went to trial or settled. I would guess it probably settled. I think if he had brought a workers' comp claim and could prove some type of psychological disability as a result of the threats to squeeze his swollen testicle, he very well may have recovered workers' comp. In fact, I think he clearly would have. But the swollen testicle was not it was not work-related. Work. It, 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 he wasn't right. claiming the injury for, to the testicle. He was claiming the threat to squeeze it and the effect that had on him emotionally. So let's assume, let's assume that, that he was not, he didn't have this condition, right? But the gentleman, but the, but the person said, I'm going to squeeze your testicle. And it wasn't the one that was hurt. W would it be compensable? Uh, no, it wouldn't matter. It wouldn't matter. Because this one, this one didn't get hurt from something. In other words. <laughs> I know what you're trying to say. The th I think the threat of hurting somebody <laughs> Is just, regardless, is regardless. If if they if somebody were to find that was a sufficient emotional or mental trauma to trigger an emotional tr mental reaction, and that would be a question of medical legal fact, that would be compensable. It would have arisen out of the employment. It's a supervisor chastising somebody uh, about his or her workability and making a threat of physical harm, even if he didn't mean he was using it as an expression. Like I think the other thing here is I'll kick your ass. I don't think he would have, but the threat of doing that could be found mm. to be enough to trigger an emotional response that might require either a disability or a need for psychological treatment. And that's all the court in this case said is there's an issue here and it should not be as a matter of law thrown out. All right. What's the next one you got for us, Judd? Uh, I just wanted to talk about another bear hug type of case. I'm really interested in bears and hugs today. Uh, this one comes out of the, the courts in Pennsylvania. This was um, a gentleman uh, who claimed injuries to his neck and low back, he says, because someone came up from behind him and hugged him real hard without warning, and it was more of an aggressive hug than a friendly hug. The person who was the person who hugged said it was a friendly hug. This claimant had given me a t-shirt recently at, at a Polish festival, thought of it as a friendly gesture, and it was an act of goodness and kindness, so he wanted to get behind him and just give him a big hug. But as much as that's kind of a, a funny set of facts, it, it did cause the claimant, you know, according to him, to have his feet come off off the ground. It snapped him back and it, you know, caused him to have some physical therapy, had, had some uh, disability from work. And essentially, the court found that it was, it was on credibility, right? The, the court found that the claimant wasn't credited and wasn't credible because there was evidence that the claimant worked with the, with the guy right after, never reported this as an injury, went on to work with the, you know, again, with the same gentleman, and it turned on credibility determinations. And the appellate court said, we're going to affirm the decision to deny this claim because, you know, the fact finder has complete authority over questions of witness credibility and evidentiary weight. So the bear hug was not compensable. It was just a bear hug. Yeah. On that note, why don't we take our last break of this episode and we'll be right back for the ending of a few more interesting workers' comp cases. We'll be right back. It can be frustrating to wade through the malpractice insurance application process, but you know you need to protect your firm. Alps designed their application to be flexible, easy, and 100% online. Fill it out, review your quote, accept and pay in as little as 10 minutes. 
Alps is the nation's largest direct writer of lawyers' malpractice insurance, and they are endorsed by more bar associations than any other carrier, so they understand law firms. They also know how valuable your time is, and that's why they make legal malpractice insurance easy. Visit alpsinsurance.com to learn more. That's A-L-P-S insurance.com. Hey, Guy, what's up? Just having some lunch, Conrad. Hey, Guy, do you see that billboard out there? Oh, you mean that guy out there in the gray suit? Yeah, the gray suit guy. Order up. There's uh, all those beautiful, rich, leather-bound books in the background. That is exactly the one. That's J.D. McGuffin at Law. He'll fight for you! I bet you he has got so many years of experience. Like decades and decades. And I bet, Guy, I bet he even went to a law school. Are you a lawyer? Do you suffer from dull marketing and a lack of positioning in a crowded legal marketplace? Sit down with Guy and Conrad for Lunch Hour Legal Marketing on the Legal Talk Network, available wherever podcasts are found. All right, we're back to Workers' Comp Matters discussing some interesting cases. Judd, uh, you've got one you want to chat. Let's hear it. Yeah, this came out of Nevada, Alan, and this is Durst v. Silver State Cultivation. This had to, uh, this injury took place in a dispens- cannabis dispensary. The claimant observed one of his coworkers seeking assistance of their supervisor in handling an agitated customer. Fearing for the supervisor's safety, the claimant actually went, intervened and, again, bear-hugged the assailant, uh, the customer, down to the ground and when he was doing that, was injured himself. And so he filed a claim, and initially it was denied as not being in the course and scope of his employment. Like if there is a problem in the store, the workers are told to immediately call police 911, don't intervene. Well, in this case, he intervened. And the appeals court decided that the judge erred in making that uh, application of arising out of, not arising out of employment, that he, there are four types of risk that the court noted that an employee might encounter while at work. Employment-related risks, personal risks, neutral risks, and mixed risks. That's when a personal cause and an employment cause combine to produce the harm. And here, this injury, I think, fell in that fourth mixed risk column. And was determined to be partially employment-related, partially personal. But I think that the court made the correct uh, analysis here and concluded that this arose out of and in the course of an employment with uh, the dispensary. What do you think, Al? Well, I, I, first of all, I think you're right. I think the court is right. Uh, this gets us to the broader issue of violating a company rule of policy generally speaking, or even violating your own work restriction. Let's say you've got a 30-pound work restriction due to a work-related or even a non-work-related back injury and you lift 50 pounds. That will generally should not bar you from receiving workers' comp. If you are furthering the employer's interest and you just voluntarily do something to be quicker or more efficient, you have to look at the case law and the statutory precepts in the particular jurisdiction. But in most jurisdictions, because workers' comp is a no-fault system, you have to have done the offending act from which your injury flowed as a result of your own willful misconduct as opposed to just, you know, here, you know, something is happening. It's, you know, his supervisor was was threatened. Yes, company rules say don't intervene. They may, you may see that on shoplifting cases, somebody or a holdup. 
or uh, maybe a security guard in a bank. Don't confront. But if somebody does confront and gets hurt, that should be covered unless they somehow intentionally did it for the purpose of injuring themselves, which I can think of very few fact situations that would do that. You know, I think that under these facts, to me, there should be no question that the the worker who was trying to prevent harm to his supervisor by doing something that the book said he shouldn't do would be enough to deprive him of medical care and wage replacement for his injuries. So, you know, I, I think to conclude, if you do enough of this work or you, you listen to enough of these podcasts or you go online and you educate yourself, you'll see a, not only a, a whole line of these types of cases, but we've seen things and they're all grouped together. For example, and we've talked about some of them before. We've talked about the vending machine cases. You know, I can imagine somebody getting hurt shaking a candy bar out of a stuck candy bar of a vending machine and the vending machine toppling over. You think that might happen once. It's happened numerous times in cases that are actually reported, never mind how many cases that haven't been reported. And generally speaking, from the cases we've looked at, injuries from shaking a vending machine because of a stuck Twix bar, and I'm thinking of a Seinfeld episode, generally the injured person would be, would be covered if the employer provided, you know, the vending machine. And even if they did something stupid, like shaking the machine, generally considered those people have recovered benefits. And we've had other cases where somebody came over and they shook the vending machine and it toppled over in a, an innocent, innocent bystander and they've recovered. And, the, you know, the, the others, you know, as we were talking about the bear uh, hug and the bear cases, two cases came to mind. I don't have the sight of them, but one was the zookeeper who decided uh, there was a, a grizzly bear in its habitat in the zoo. And he decided to give the bear a high five. Evidently, maybe this bear, when he's on his hind legs, sticks out his paw. And he went to give a high five to the bear and he extended um, one of his uh, two hands and he retracted something less than one of his two hands. And the question mm -hmm. here is attempting to high five a bear, a known risk. Should you receive workers' comp for that? And I, I think properly he should have. Uh, contrast that with a night watchman in a zoo who either was intoxicated or high and decided he would go into the bear habitat and wrestle a polar bear, much to his personal health and uh, well-being. In that case, he was denied workers' compensation, even though the injury arose out of it in the course of employment, but there was an intoxication defense. It was a common sense defense. So these cases are out there. They can be entertaining to read. They can be tragic if you are the victim of them, but they all, in one way or another, underlying a general precept of workers' comp in the phrase arising out of and in the course of employment. A very simple two-phrase sentence from which there have been thousands of cases and likely thousands of more because, as they say on the old TV show, there are a million cases in the naked city and this is one of them. And mm. we see that every day. We handle hundreds of cases a year. One of us always comes into the office and says, you won't believe this one. So we hope you enjoyed half a dozen or so cases that we've brought you today. And we think we will make this a regular feature periodically <laughs> because they're, they're fun to talk about and they are educational to talk about. Yeah, maybe we'll get three more people asking for us to redo this episode next time. <laughs> maybe it'll go up to six. Well, I'd like to thank Alan uh, for joining us here today. Thank you for listening. Listen again, go out and make it a day that matters. Bye-bye. <laughs>